Hello, everyone. Welcome back. In this episode, I am joined by food scientist Ryan Scannell to explore the topic of cheese. What's the science of cheese? Uh, if you ever wondered, what do I know about cheese? This episode might be an interesting one for you. In fact, we go into the science of cheese and talk a lot of chemistry. We talk background, some history. As always, if you enjoy the conversation, make sure to subscribe, share, like, and comment. If you ever want to know more about cheese, well, get ready. There's a lot coming. But uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we have something in common um, and that's, I don't know, maybe you have more in common with my mom than you do with me, but my, my grandfather owned a dairy um, oh. for, I don't know, a decade or more. Um, and, you know, that's really where he found his bliss. He, he's originally from San Francisco. We're, we're from a, um, one of those families from San Francisco and the, you know, yeah. like Gatsby type, you know, whatever's. And um, so we have a lot of history, rich history in, in the city. Um, by the way, if you're listening, the city refers to San Francisco. If you're on the West coast, not New York, uh, that's an East coast thing. So um, it's not Chicago, Chicago, you know, I never <laughs> thought about referring to Chicago as the city. Like Chicago's fantastic. Cause it has a lot of the, um, amplitude that you'd find like in New York, but it still feels like you're in the Midwest, which is nice. Like it's, um, it's not a far drive away, <laughs> no. you know, and, um, you can, I think you can, well, I don't want to use the word escape, but maybe I should, you can escape Chicago easier than this Island, New York, or even San Francisco is a peninsula, right? And you've got yeah. bridges or you've got to navigate this peninsula and go around in order to, to get out. Um, but yeah, it's a, you know, Chicago's the thing. Um, I appreciate it, but you know, he, he owned a dairy and, um, he, he left kind of his life, right. He, he left his life of, um, you know, whatever, um, people in that, I don't know, class, I guess you could call it, um, how they lived and, um, you know, what their concerns were and, he ended up, you know, moving to the mountains and just kind of um, reinventing himself okay. uh, out of nothing. Yeah. And so, you know, when you when you come from means and then you intentionally reject the means because you know anything um, maybe unhappy, let's say, like was attached to that life and um, just what it did to people, how the people treated each other, how they thought about the world and others. Um, you know, he went up and into, you know, I forget how many acres of land he had and um, purchased a dairy and he figured it out. And so he was a, a, a cattleman, right? Like, and he uh, followed in the footsteps of his own um, great grandfather, who would be my great, great, great grandfather, yeah. who, I mean, I guess you could call it, he wasn't a cowboy, like he had purchased cattle and um, he had driven cattle from the border um from san diego up into 
um, Central California. So it's in the the family blood, right? Like they, I think they had made their wealth um, that way, or at least a a portion of it through that. And um, yeah, so, you know, here he is instead, you know, he's telling me, you know, the best days of his life were when he was up working at five every morning and, you know, the, the weather was crisp and he's milking cows and he's got uh, manure under his fingernails and, you know, like this painting, this picture of something unpleasant for a lot of folks, <laughs> who's going to want to swap for that. But, you know, there's something about it that um, created a peace and really gave him, um, you know, I think the words bliss. So I'll go back to that, you know, this, this peace and happiness that he had. What was, what was it like for you growing up on a dairy and what did I miss by, you know, him having sold it and then, you know, like our family being turned in a different direction just because my mom wasn't, um, she wasn't a dairy gal. Uh, well, you know, uh, I feel your pain because uh, we, let's say the first homestead would have been in 1849. Nice. Wisconsin was founded in 1848. And so <clears throat> over time they got uh uh, 440s. And so uh, I think that ends up being a quarter section, but it wasn't a full quarter section. It was basically four different quarters of uh, four different quarter sections. Uh, and up in Wisconsin, uh, it's it's gravel uh, where we are. Uh, the glaciers came down. And if you've ever been up to Alaska, uh, there's areas. I remember uh, a tour guide saying, yeah, see those two mountains? Those used to be one, one rock shelf that the glacier carved out, um, and that's why there's a U-shape. And then uh, over time, uh, we got out of that ice age, and then there's no more, um, you know, glacier there. And it's like, oh, okay, well, you got two mountains, and all that rock had to go someplace, and it went underneath our farm. We've got gravel pit. We got gravel pits that go right up to our our farm. Uh, so that continues on underneath. So it's not the greatest farmland. But for a bunch of people coming from, um, you know, the famine in uh, Ireland, uh, it's a big deal. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure if they were able to own land because they were Catholics mm. underneath uh, uh, um, Protestant rule. So they come here, they they get their uh, land, they start uh, farming. Uh, you know, eventually you've got sons get different land, and so there's a lot of people with my same last name, Scannell, there, and. Uh, but now it's it's really tough to make it in the in the agricultural world. Uh, the industrial revolution hits everything. Uh, you had the consolidation of different farms, uh, and the idea of a family farm. You know, we had forty five cows. Um, that's that's now it's now a very small farm. Uh, most most farms are going the you know. The, you're, we're talking the thousands, not the, not the tens, not the hundreds, you know, moving towards the thousands. And there's uh, a lot of farmers, um, you know, as milk prices go up and down, um, as, uh, you know, we live in a very uh, a society built on usury. And a, a lot of them end up falling into uh, bad places and some even taking their own lives. Mm. And so it's a, it's a tough place for the for the family farm, that's, uh, it's really not part of the equation, in my opinion, of uh, American uh, air culture. Now, now there's one, uh, um, you know, I've got some cheese here because we're talking cheese. This is uh, 
raw cheddar from Leclerc Family Creamery, uh, they're very successful in doing some vertical integration. They ended up uh, having uh, got into goats, uh, that family. Uh, I don't know their entire history, but every time I've, I've worked with them, they've been very pleasant. And uh, eventually, you know, they had other jobs. Goats was their passion. They turned that into a, um, a family business. And then they were able to pass it on to the next generation and then uh, built a creamery where they're doing, you know, goat fluid milk, goat cheese, goat um, um, other, other things, and a little craft store, you know, not too far off of a major highway. There's also um, Kelly's Creamery uh, near Eden, Wisconsin, uh, where Highway B and Highway 45, no, I'm sorry, I'm getting my, my things mixed up. But anyway, they're near, they've been, they've been on Good Morning America. So if you go and look up Kelly's Creamery, Wisconsin, uh, they do all the ice cream sandwiches for the EAA, which is a big deal right now. That's the uh, Experimental Aviation Association up in Oshkosh. And, uh, you know, they found a way to vertically integrate. And, and, of course, we keep on getting more and more removed as a society away from uh, having people ever even been, been to a farm. Uh, you know, how is, how is milk or how is the food that we buy, um, you know, how, how, is it, how is it made? And you know, there's there's actually a lot of city folk that don't take the approach like your uh, grandfather did with starting a farm. You know, they moved into the country to escape the city, and then they're surprised. Oh my gosh, this uh, neighbor is spreading their manure, and uh, you know, then they complain, and right. uh, so uh, a, a culture clash. And we're in a society right now where you know the biggest landowner is probably what you got. Uh, um, Ted Turner and Bill Gates buying up farmland left and right. So um, the vertical integration that made these companies, you know, successful to survive, it's also happening at an industrial level, where um, you know farms are are either you know being purchased or if they're not purchased, it's through long term contracts, and um, it is what it is. It, uh, you know, the farming that's going to happen, continue to happen, it's going to happen probably at a very local level, you know, your garden, your victory garden, um, your, uh, if you live in a town that is able to raise hens, uh, that type of stuff. Um, it's, it's tough, tougher farmers. Uh, now in the, what they put in the material for advertisements and stuff, they'll always make sure that they got a picture of a, you know, happy farmer and his, uh, little family, but the way things are set up is, um, it's not set up for their success, unfortunately. Right. So. Right. People getting pushed out, it seems. Yeah. And, um, you know, you miss, well, I guess for farms, you you miss a season or two. Um, mm -hmm. the consequences are dire, right? right? Um, now for the dairy having 45 cows, it's still more than, you know, old Bessie, right? <laughs> you know, if, did you have an old Bessie? Uh, you know, I don't remember the, the I don't remember the names of them. My How dare dad you? If you them. name them, it's problematic, right? <laughs> my my uh, they, they my dad had names. Uh, I'm sure I gave them some names. Uh, it was probably probably we were more likely to name a, a kit, kitten, and uh, we were more likely to lose a kitten <laughs> with vehicles driving around and uh, and cows. So uh, we learn about life and death. I, I grew up, you know, 
uh, helping my dad, um, you know, give birth to a cow, you know, so wrap a, uh, a rope around their legs, try to push with the contract or a pull with the contractions. Um, you know, there's a breach birth dad having to dig in there and turn it around. Um, and, and they, uh, so, so you saw the life side of things. And then also, you know, there was cases where all of a sudden you're pulling and the hoof falls off. It's like, Oh, there's a dead calf in there. Now we got to give, get it out of there so that the cow doesn't die from, uh, toxicosis. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, learning about life and death, learning about where our stuff comes from. Uh, my dad, uh, in, because we were small, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, it was really, he wasn't having me milk cows before uh, I went to school, you know, so, uh, you know, some places there was, you know, farm boys were doing that. But that wasn't, that wasn't the way I grew up. Um, you know, it ends up being a lot of work for, for a man trying to raise a, a family on, on that. And so he transitioned the farm to grass and we did intensive rotational grazing. It's also known as uh, New Zealand style, but you have some, some, um, paddocks that are wired with permanent electrical wire. So this electrical wire, it's intermittent. And the idea is that if a cow touches it, it gets a shock and doesn't, uh, and so it remains in a single area. In the old days, they would use barbed wire, but you can injure a cow, especially a teat on that. And now you've got to, you know, um, your moneymakers, you know, not, not very good. Uh, So uh, they, over time, they went to um, high tensile uh, stainless steel wire, ran an electrical current through it, and it pulsed so that um, you got the shock, but you know you didn't end up hurting the animal. Um, and then amongst that, that we had a portable wire uh, called poly wire. Yeah, poly because there's a, um, a plastic uh, woven in, uh, mostly plastic, but then you get a few very thin. Um, wires uh woven into it and it'd still carry a charge but you could roll it up like a like a rope and so there it'd be on a reel and you would subdivide these uh these paddocks and so my dad understood based on how the quality of the grass you know with the season how tall it was uh his herd uh so we we had we had 45 of a milking herd we probably had that many of of a non-milking herd as well and so um over time you go and uh, you know, you're to get the milk, your cows have to be giving birth yeah. and then you keep milking them and, uh, it keeps, keeps it flowing. They keep on producing the milk. And so you need uh, a herd for young, uh, animals that you can either grow, um, raise up into be replacement of your milking herd or to sell them. Uh, and so that was, that was our, our, uh, non-milking herd. The, the milking her oh and dry cows and so there's a period of time before a cow gives birth that you want to dry them up and then that way um they are energy that they would have been and nutrients that they would have been making into milk they can now put into the calf right and put into them them, them own their own selves so that they don't like deplete their own calcium in, the, in their bones to give to the calf and so there's a lot of things to to balance uh the milking herd would be uh, given a plot of land um, of pasture every uh, 12 hours. And so you keep them in a fine place. First, they're going to harvest the, uh, the, you know, the tastiest 
most nutritious um, grass. And then they'll go with the second and then they'll, they'll go down to the third and then uh, you go and milk them. And, you know, so you, you take them back to the farm, you go and uh, get, prepare some more uh, pasture for them to come back to. And so when they're done milking, where you then feed them some uh, supplemental grain, uh, you know, the grain is like candy to them. So it helps them go into the stanchions. You go and are able to close the stanchions and then uh, milk them without them moving around. And so, uh, you know, to milk them, we, we use a, uh, well, I mean, it's going to be like a, you know, a, a woman's breast pump milk, you know, yeah. if they're, they're um, in, in the modern world, but instead you got four of them and they're pulsating and, uh, and it does the same motion as if you were using, you know, two hands and a, and a bucket, uh, but a lot cleaner because it's all, all contained. Right. And so then it goes into a bulk tank. You go and take your uh, cows back out to that new uh, plot of land, and you know they repeat the cycle. And we would have them sleep out there, and uh, you know we have coyotes around. So whenever they give birth out there, they would a herd instinct would kick in, and they would go and surround the calf, and wow. um, you know be willing to kill any coyotes that would mess with it. And uh, so it was a very natural way for us to. Uh, to, to raise the cattle. Our, our farm is, is mostly gravel anyway, so it's not good for, you know, a lot of other crops. It's, um, it, a lot of hills, um, that are, that are filled with gravel that, uh, um, that the glaciers left behind. We live, um, in, in a part, we don't live too far from the ice age center, which is a little center that teaches everyone in Dundee, Wisconsin about the glaciers. Uh, so that is really how our farm has been car been shaped by by the history of 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 the earth. And then you know, come down to to Illinois, and uh, there's a reason we call call them flatlanders because everything is flat. You know, perfect for doing uh, just rows and rows of corn, soybeans, whatever you want to you want to grow, which is not great for our farm. Um, you know, we still have the old. Um, um, stone walls that were built by my ancestors. Uh, the, the, there was not a piece of the property that was without a stone. And so they had to go someplace and they built stone walls with them. Like you'd see in Ireland. Yeah. And that was, um, you know, so, so yeah, on, under the ground, there's gravel on top of it. There was these giant rocks. We got one picture someplace. It's of the last field that was, uh, cleared. And, uh, by then they had cameras and, uh, yeah, these giant rocks that, they had to deal with. That's amazing. You know, I, I like what you said about being or growing up around the process and, and seeing life and death and mm -hmm. um, all of these things. In fact, I, you know, I, part of me is always a little um, irked when I'm in a supermarket and I see meat, right. You know, and yeah. uh, uh, you know, given, given our tradition, we, we are vegetarian frequently Okay. So it, it's easier to be a vegetarian. Um, and though I'm not like, I'm not necessarily a vegetarian. I, I think like I, I prefer eating animal products when I have some role in the process. If I'm fishing, like I want to eat the fish sure. you know? and otherwise it becomes product, right? Like, and this is a life that, you know, it ate, didn't do much, but it ate <laughs> and, you know, um, you know, and maybe it gave, well, I don't know about giving birth if you're eating the meat, right? Like that's a different type of cow, isn't it? Well, um, you, you, you need, you need to have both sexes in order to, uh, 
give birth. So there's going to be some that are in the beef world that are, um, you know, that are female, some, some set aside for breeding, uh, others that are going to be male, um, the male calves uh, from a dairy farm, they have to go someplace. So they'd be, yeah. uh, sold for not very much into the beef world where they would be re- raised as a beef, beef cow. Um, in fact, they're, I think Angus, I think technically the rules are, and don't quote me on this is, but it's, they have to be, uh, the animals have to be 51% black and not have been used for dairy. And so mm. you could actually have a mostly black, uh, Holstein, um, cow that, well, probably a bull, uh, steer. And so, uh, I guess for terminology for, for people, um, a cow is a milking, uh, uh, bovine, uh, bovine would be the species. Um, the bull would be the male and would still have all of his reproductive organs intact. A steer is uh, one where uh, has been castrated. And so that goes and prevents uh, the more um, aggressive nature and uh, which is danger, uh, dangerous. And, um, and then for, you know, a, a heifer is a um, cow that has not given birth, has not freshened. That's the term for uh, the first, uh, for a cow that's getting ready to give birth. And, uh, they, they typically don't, uh, don't, uh, give birth until, uh, their, their second year, mm-hmm. uh, or is that when we breed them? It's, it's been a while. So we sold the cows, uh, you know, 20 years ago. So 22, well, years if you ago. breed them, I mean, you know, yeah. they at least have to be pregnant, right? Yeah. And then, so that was the other thing is we did, uh, we didn't have a bull on the farm. So we did AI, um, which uh, artificial insemination, and uh, then have to be part of that process as well. You know, having this uh, giant um, uh, straw gun thing that, uh, and uh, dad having to explain how can't go too far because if you go too far with it, you're up one uh, fallopian tube, and the ovarian uh, in in cows and humans they tend to switch. the The cow is a model organism in, in in research for human reproduction because both give birth to one animal at a time. Uh, tend to have about a nine month uh, gestation period. Mm. And so a lot of time and, and the same hormones and cascading and development of the, uh, of the ovarian follicle and the corpus luteum, a lot of times the cow is used as a model organism, but I, I don't recommend telling a pregnant woman that she's a cow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but as far as I've heard um, it done, <laughs> believe it or not this year, actually. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, the person's a, a unique personality. And, um, I think that's why his wife, uh, loved him, but it was, uh, my, my wife and I turned to each other and go like, did he just refer to his own wife that way? What the, anyhow, but, uh, anyway, yeah. So, so with, with that, um, you know, you don't go far enough. Uh, you, you don't have a good chance that, uh, you know, cause, cause you're buying the genetics, the sperm, the semen from a company that that's what they do is they, they go and uh, have a set of cattle, uh, bulls that they're uh, got a certain set of genetics that you're buying and uh, it's more safe. It's you know safer not to have a bull around, uh, but you have to be in the right spot because if the ovarian follicle or the one ovary is uh, ovulating at a time and it switches. And so if you go and go too far, well, now you've cut your chances to 50% and could waste um, you know, that time, uh, you waste time and you waste, uh, the genetics that you bought. Well, I'm glad you, you're using the word genetics. That's going to help us get through the AI filter 
and make sure that this stays <laughs> well, PG rated. I've, I've, I've used some other words, so you might have to uh, clip those. I think you're, I think you're good. I love the fact that you're drinking a nice uh, jar of milk too, <laughs> as we're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah it I mean, is milk. Let's, let's get after the discussion that we had. I, want I to know this we're, is milk. I, I wanted you, I wanted you on I to talk about cheese and here we are talking about um, bovine eugenics, you know, and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> the alternative title for the podcast is bovine eugenics, but um, yeah, let's talk about cheese. Like, okay. so you're okay. We'll buy process. We'll buy process. We'll bypass mm-hmm. the whole milk uh, process and just get right to cheese making. You sure. know, like uh, Wisconsin is known for cheese, mm-hmm. right? You know, and um, uh, look, cheese is fantastic. And cheese um, is something I'm interested in for the flavor, of course, but uh, it also shows up in my own research, you know, like cheese is present in Sumerian, um, Akkadian, you know, Aramaic, Hebrew, all these ancient languages, um, even uh, Mediterranean languages, uh, Greek and linear B, you've got, you've got early attestations of cheese, but you know, what's fascinating is the Sumerian one. And because just because of the the date of the language, you know, it's going back more than 2000 years prior to Jesus. Right. So about 4000 years ago or more um, that it's attested in human records. Now, I don't know. I don't know enough to distinguish what types of cheese they had, whether it was merely um, curdled milk or, you know, the curds. Um, I mean, we make cheese in the house. We make a Syrian cheese in the house. And I think it's like farmer's cheese is what people call it. You know, okay. it's very basic. It's, you know, you, you boil the milk, you separate it and you throw in some kind of acid. Right. And, um, okay. yeah, that's, if, that, yeah, the same way you'd make uh, ricotta. Okay. Yeah. And it, it congeals. And then we use a cheesecloth to kind of uh, make it dense and um shape it and then it it turns out real nice i mean it's not um it's not deeply flavorful but i like it's um it's usable (laughs) i guess it's it's a utility cheese and um it's very fresh obviously you know it's it's home you're getting it as soon as it's ready um there's no lag time at the grocery store whatever happens in between the dairy and the grocery store were you guys, did you ever make cheese? You know, no, um, not on our farm. Uh, well, and, and not in our, uh, in our kitchen. In fact, uh, when we were young, we used the pasteurizer, but uh, as we grew older, uh, we grew up on, on raw milk and, uh, it wasn't, I think it was mostly because of pasteurizer. It took time to clean and, and sometimes if you didn't do it right, you give an off flavor to the milk. And it was like, um, uh, as long as you respected the raw milk, not everyone does, but you know, we knew the cows, they were ours. We yeah. knew that the milk tank was uh, always cold and uh, we would get yelled at if we left it on the kitchen table for too long. Uh, so we, we learned to respect that. Um, but uh, so, yeah, we didn't, we didn't make too much. Uh, I mean, when I got into cheese was when I got my cho- job as a cheese scientist. So that was when I first really started make, making cheese. That's, you know, maybe your dairy background is enough to, um, you know, discriminate you against the other employees and say, this is the, this is our guy. This is our guy. 
right? Yeah. <laughs> Their hiring committee is sitting around all comparable CVs. You go, yeah, but he, he was raised on a dairy. <laughs> He's got a sense for it, right? Yes, yes. Well, I started off on their fried food division and then I just fried cheese, cheese sticks. And then, oh, okay. Then they needed, then they needed someone to do the cheese. And I moved into being a principal scientist on the cheese side. So, uh, but I loved, uh, I love fermentation. Um, With our last uh, discussion, we were talking about beer. Yeah. And um, when I started working for this uh, company, uh, making the fried cheese sticks and other things. um, In fact, uh, I, my claim to fame is, so these are cheese curds. Cheese curds are a um, cheese that uh, has not been pressed into a block and is very young. And uh, so it ha- it, it, if you were to squeeze these together, they'd all end up making cheddar cheese eventually. Uh, but they're very young. They still have their squeak. And my claim to fame is I made the first um, coast, coast-to-coast uh, fried cheese curd that was sold into uh, fast food restaurants. So, and, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't rocket science, but, uh, I, I found my niche there and I really liked the science behind how I got that to work, got to learn more about the cheese. And I took every class I could at the center for dairy research in Madison. It's a, um, part run by the, uh, the university there, uh, but funded by the, uh, milk, uh, checkoff uh, from the farmers. They all, uh, a portion of their check goes towards, uh, the center for dairy research and uh and, and milk marketing so they um have some wonderful classes and that's how i got into being a cheese scientist that's wild i mean <laughs> like not many people can say that they're cheese scientists and what were you saying about the the idea of these cheese curds if yeah. you press them together long enough they're gonna turn into cheddar like what oh in fact well, so I, I hate to say this they, they vacuum packed these so they're they're kind of actually all squished together right now when you vacuum pack, seal something, you end up uh, pressing them together. But when they are um, making, well, let's, let's call it, uh, you know, cheddar. The cheddaring process is they're um, putting these slabs of, of um, cheese curds together. And eventually, they'll put them into molds, put some pressure to remove the last remaining uh, whey, the liquid. And uh, if you put enough pressure on, you'll end up uh, making a nice block of cheese. And uh, so for some of them, they put a lot of pressure on uh, for other ones that have a, a more open knit. So sometimes uh, Kobe cheese, they don't necessarily always press that uh, very hard or, or really baby Swiss. So everyone knows with Swiss cheese, you end up getting the little circles yeah. because um, the culture that they're using is, is consuming, uh, is it, they're, they're consuming the citric acid and making propionic acid, something like that. Um, I'm not a very good cheese scientist. <laughs> I've been away from it for too long, uh, that I've, uh, but as they are creating basically gas, uh, and they have the, the eyes there. Well, or you don't press them very close together and you'll get the, the lacy Swiss, the, um, the baby Swiss, and you'll see that the openings in it, they're not circles, they're irregular. And that's actually where the pieces of curd uh, hit together and oh. left a little bit of spot. And uh, they just found that this was an easy way to go and market it differently. And um, you know, maybe there's some other benefits of it, but that's what the baby Swiss is, is, is that they're just not pressing it together as, as much. That's wild. Um, you know, there's so many different types of cheeses out there on the market. 
uh, where does it like where does it start? Is what I described the kind of cheese we make at home? You know, is that like um, is that like the humanoid cl- like clone? And then you insert more specific DNA, and you get Mike or Ryan or someone else. Like how do how does it work? You know, to where cheese differentiates? You know, is it? I mean, can we give the cow different food to produce different milk? Sort of like the way that, you know, Kobe beef, they, the cows get beer and what have you. You ever seen the Napoleon Dynamite? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's sure he's in the FFA and, uh, and, and there's dairy judging clubs at the university level as well. And they're, you know, drinking it. And this tastes like the, the cow got into an onion patch. Right. Uh, yeah, that was the- this, <laughs> this, this one tastes like bleach. And, and those are legitimate things because you'd be using a cleaning agent uh, in a dairy. And uh, if you're not careful, you could end up uh, getting some of that cleaning agent into, into the milk. And so uh, that's probably a very legitimate uh, test. Of course, when they go, oh, it smells, this tastes like bleach, uh, you know, everyone gets freaked out, but uh, you'd be able to catch that in your, um, in your process and, and the different metrics that you're using. Uh, you know, pH testing, the pH is too high. Uh, and I, I remember reading that they were feeding some cows orange peels. They were trying to figure out uh, things to do with orange peels. I think they, I think the flavor industry probably found out more things to do with it. And uh, that's probably a higher way to make more money off, off of orange peels. Uh, but they fed some to cows and found that the flavors uh, were ending up in the milk. And uh, so I, I, most of your flavor development is going to be though on how you make the cheese, not on uh, the cow itself. So for uh, for the cheese that you described, that is an acid set cheese. Um, all cheese, uh, like most fermentation products, and like the, like the beer that I mentioned before, it's about preservation. And so, how do you preserve? I mean, beer. There's other reasons why you you drink beer, but um, at at its core, it's preservation. And and milk, you know, if I let this sit around uh, for too long, um, it's not going to taste very good. It's eventually going to get off flavors. It could make me sick. Yeah. Um, You know, could be growing listeria in there, and now I'm now I'm at risk of of dying because I didn't uh, you know respect uh, what it is. Right. And so with with cheese, what you're doing is you are lowering the pH. And so that's one way to preserve it. You might add salt in the process, which, uh, which also adds flavor, but that also helps preserve it and keep uh, pathogens from growing. Uh, but also um, with this, I've got the raw cheddar, that's not gonna be pasteurized. With this um, Parmesan, um, I, know, I know it's pasteurized. And so um, if you have that, heat process, you, you boiled the milk. That is a pasteurization process. You're also doing some other things because you're denaturing the proteins, you're cross-linking some proteins, and that's going to affect the texture of it. Um, and, and then uh, finally, uh, you're draining away the, uh, the, the whey, the, the water phase. And so if you want to go and grow microbes, you keep the salt low, you go and uh, keep the water activity high, and you make sure there's a lot of uh, a lot of freely available food to eat, particularly sugar. Well, you make cheese, you, co- you, you create you, all that nice sugar, that lactose gets converted into acid. A lot of it does. And so that, that is no longer easily consumable by, by microbes. You've now created a, a more acid, lower pH, less likely to grow stuff. You add the salt and, uh, 
and you're, you know, removing some of the moisture. And so now you can preserve it longer. And many of the cultures that we use, they naturally, naturally promote, uh, create, um, little, little, um, bacteria sins. Uh, so these are going to be basically, um, you know, they don't harm us, but they, they keep other microbes at bay. And so they've naturally created a bunch of molecules that are basically, um, uh, antibiotics yeah. that uh, prevent uh, other pathogens from growing. And so that's one of the things is the more you put in the cultures that you want, the less likely you get, you get pathogens that are growing that you don't want. And, you know, when it comes to, to flavoring, right? Like why do, mm -hmm. uh, we talked about it with beer a little bit and, yeah. you know, regionalism and things like that. Why do certain, regions you know like why do we get um provolone and mozzarella from italy mm -hmm. and you know maybe we'll get uh, an english cheddar sure. you know or some kind of german munster mm -hmm. um like what what goes into the well number one how do the flavors happen how like sure. apart from you know what you just described um and you know is it just you know, that's how they made it and they passed it on. Like that was their discovery. And so that became a national sort of cheese. Um, I, I don't know. I, I mean, or do they, you know, is there an art and craft to, I mean, maybe that's, I'm asking you the history of, of cheese making, I guess, um, you know, is there a cheese that um, seems to be kind of a baseline cheese that different communities will develop or, um, you know, I mean, say it bring to market, but I think for most human history and even recently, right? Like people could get by on bread and cheese because it's mobile, it's durable. You don't have to do much with it if you're working like you're, um, you know, last couple hundred years, right? Like people would take a, a chunk of cheese and bread and that's mm -hmm. how you ate food. Right. So, so I think part of it, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be able to answer all those questions, but a lot of it's going to depend on whether or not you're a mobile society, nomadic society or, or set. So if you are a uh, mobile society with goats where you're using vessels to go and store the milk and um, you know, those vessels are probably going to be skins. Um, you know, that's, that it, it might be the first case of where they discovered how to use rennet. Rennet is an enzyme that um, on the milk, um, you have casein in there. That's, uh, that is one of the cheese, uh, proteins, uh, the, sure. one of the most important used for, for cheese making. And there are a bunch of hairs on it. Um, you know what, why don't I first start with just talking about how, how, how cheese is made and start with milk. Let's do it. it. Let's do that. Let's do uh, it. Cause I'm, I've, I've already started down this path. You so, start into casein and whey, then I'm going to start talking, you know, like athletics and, you know, training and muscle <laughs> you know, growth and things like that. So <laughs> go, go right ahead. Uh, I mean, so, so milk is a, a very, um, it's designed to grow a little calf into a big cow and uh, we, or, or a little uh, kid, a uh, goat kid or uh, um, uh, lamb from, uh, from a sheep. And so with all of these, um, you ended up finding a way, uh, culture said, well, if we continue to milk these animals, uh, they'll continue to produce milk and that will go and convert something that we can't eat grass into something that we can consume. 
that is uh, high in energy. So you got your fat, you've got your, um, your lactose in there, your sugars. Uh, high in protein, that's important for the development of, you know, muscles, skin, and, and uh, all of our organs. And then there is, is also the minerals. But how do you make sure that um, all that is stays in, in a fluid? Because if you ever mix oil and water together, you'll have the oil floating on the top, you'll have the water underneath, and yet you have all this, you know, in, in here, even if you don't homogenize this, this is homogenized. You know, how do, um, you know, if this wasn't homogenized, eventually you'd see the cream settle to the top, but it's still in a water solution. Um, you know, you go and buy uh, heavy cream at a grocery store, it's still, I don't know, 50% uh, water, more or less, uh, depending on whether or not you're eating light or heavy. And um, part of that is there are these phospholipids that are around the fat globules. So phospholipids, um, fat is a nonpolar molecule. You go and look at it, there's going to be no charges on it, no pluses or minuses on there. Uh, water by its nature creates a dipole and on one side it's going to be negatively charged and the other side positively charged. And those two do not want to mix uh, like with like. You want to have your polar uh, molecules like to be with each other, your uh, nonpolar molecules like to be with each other. Your phospholipids um, they are um, basically both. They're, um, they, they swing both ways. And on the one hand, they're polar. On the other hand, they're, they got a side that's nonpolar. And so they create an interface that is energetically favorable to go and have these fat globules uh, all together. And so that's mother nature finding a way to go and mix both water and, and fat together. Well, then the proteins. Uh, while your casein in here, uh, you got basically your fat soluble and your, your water soluble pro, uh, proteins in here, and both play a role and both are, uh, your casein is very important to help with the interface between the, um, the fat globules and the rest. And they are negatively charged. Um, so on the outside, you have all these, um, the, the, the casein that's able to interact with the fat globules and are able to interact with the, um, uh, with the water phase. If you do homogenize, you know, all of a sudden your, your fat globules get destroyed and you have all these little small fat droplet, droplets and uh, your surface area of those droplets is a lot greater than your surface area for the fat globules. How do you make sure that, um, you know, it doesn't separate? And if you, and if you work this enough, you'll eventually separate the two. That's how you get butter. Yeah. Um, but the casein is able to play a role of the um, emulsion, that's the word I'm looking for. They're, they're an emulsifier. And so it's uh, able to go and interface with the fat and, and, the, and, the, um, and the water. And that's the most important for, um, for making cheese. Uh, you wanna discuss what casein is from a, yeah. from a health benefit standpoint? Well, I mean, I know that, um, you know, it, it, as a, a protein that you take, it tends to be a, and look, I, I'm not going to use food science language. Oh, I'm right. going to use, uh, you know, a human <laughs> language. <laughs> uh, you tend to take it for a, a more long-term release or mm -hmm. like a longer, like maybe you'll take it later in the evening so that you're, you're um, well, what's the word for processing? Um, digest. Yeah, I guess digesting, you know, yeah. the protein sort of digesting throughout the night forward. and, you know, over a longer period than if you were to take uh, just your, I guess, regular whey protein. 
Right. Um, when we make cheese uh, or even when we make yogurt, right? Like we make yogurt at home too. So um, we've got a layer of liquid. That's our way. And then we've got the curds on the bottom and that's little miss Muffet, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you, if see the problem with, look, man, half my, I'm realizing half my podcast is me um, growing old. Cause I'm, I'm, talking about the good old days and you know the kids don't know anything uh but really i i do feel i think it's because i feel bad for what's lost and not that that they're deficient in you know not that the upcoming generation is deficient in, in character or anything but in experience right like right. you talked about you got to grow up around these experiences with the cows and um you know if you're not making stuff at home if you're not canning you know if you're not taking um like if you're you're too reliant on mm-hmm. Uh, the the market, the grocery store, you know, and look, this is what keeps the country afloat. It keeps the countries. I mean, we import stuff from other countries all the time, our fruits or, you know, whatever, even um, our canned goods. Uh, but it has a, it starts somewhere. And so where, you know, this little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet eating her curds and whey, yep. you know, like you, everyone grows up hearing that, you know, little nursery rhyme. Um, but what the heck are curds and whey, right? If you're not, if you're not immersed in it, you're not touching it, you're not eating it. Um, cottage cheese. It's just, it's yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> cottage cheese. But, but like, it's just, it sounds like it's put in there to, to keep the rhyme going. Yeah. You know, um, or at least to keep the meter. I don't know if it rhymes with anything now that I think of it, but um, you've got this layer of liquid, you've got your whey, then you've got your curds yeah. on the bottom. And so, uh, you know, Am I getting a protein boost? Like, is it good for me to to go grind for, you know, 90 minutes and then come in and just drink this uh, potion <laughs> that separated from the, the you know, the curd on the bottom that's going to be our yogurt in, in a day and a half? So um, what is, what, well, first of all, what is curds and whey? Curd is going to be your uh, fat-soluble phase and your whey is going to be your water phase, and they've now separated. And the whey protein is the water-soluble uh, side. So um, I, I typically have not worked with casein. Uh, casein is more expensive because you could use that to make cheese. Uh, whey, which is going to be going off in the, uh, the waste stream, uh, which is uh, at one point was the waste stream. It's now a co-product. At one point, they used to spray whey on fields. Uh, for, you know, and that, that would be nitrogen for the fields. And, uh, you know, you just grow corn on after it. Then they found out that they could go and sell it to people looking to get a boost in the, in the gym. And now they're making a lot of money. There's, there's actually cheese factories. And um, I don't know, this, this might be hyperbole because I don't know their books. And, uh, and I know the cheese that I bought from them uh, for, for my job, they weren't, uh, they weren't giving it away. Uh, but there are some cheese factories that have been built where, their priority is actually the way, you know, wow. they'll still make money on the, on the cheese. And, uh, and, and a lot of those, there are certain, um, types of cheese that are, um, they're higher pH. They're not very acidic. And so then your whey isn't as acidic, which can be, you know, better for whey processing or at least for the flavor. Uh, but you know, so you're, you're, you know, they, then they then, uh, you know, draw that off, they go and, um, uh, draw it off before they salt. So then you don't have that salt going in that stream either. That's so, um, then they go and continue to run that through some filters and separate the, uh, that whey protein 
from the uh, from the fluid, and then they run it through some spray dryers to get the last bit of uh, moisture out. And they'll add some flavor, and then they'll sell it and make some good money off off of it. Uh, the casing, you know, that's now less of a byproduct uh, or a co-product, whatever term you want to use. And so casing is going to be more expensive because that could have been used to make, you know, cheese. And, uh, you know, I, I drop this in, in the milk and it's not going to go and uh, or drop it into water. You know, it's not going to eventually dissolve, but whey protein, it eventually will. And so that's the big difference between the two different types of uh, whey and casing. And you'll see in, in stores now there's uh, A2 milk. And they found that some people are sensitive to uh, A1 casing that's part of the casing molecule. And they've got these, uh, talk about eugenics, uh, these yeah. freaks of, of cows that they have a mutation where they don't produce uh, one part of the casing. They're just producing the, the A2 casing. And so they found, well, you know what? We can now produce a milk that is you know, better for these people. And maybe some people are going to think, well, if it's good for these people, why isn't it? It's got to be good for me. And uh, so that's a higher value uh, uh, milk in, in the grocery stores, if, if you're ever seeing that. It's and like for it, lactose intolerance. Is that the kind of it, it, different? Uh, lactose intolerance that uh, so th that would be more like protein intolerance. It'd be like being gluten intolerant. Uh, you know, you're having trouble digesting a, a specific protein in wheat, which would be gluten and uh, having an A1 casein tolerance would be similar, having trouble digesting, or maybe there's uh, some inflammatory inflammation from it. Uh, and, you know, having an A1 free milk that they call A2 milk uh, might be better for them. Lactose intolerance. And, and so those are all, we're talking sensitivities. Um, someone might say, hey, I'm allergic to wheat. And then you find out that no, they just are, have a gluten intolerance. Um, or you might find someone might say I'm allergic to milk and they just have a lactose intolerance. Lactose intolerance just means that uh, they lack the genetic mutation in humans to go and convert lactose as an adult into its base sugars of glucose and galactose. And uh, so for some populations, that gene never gets turned off. It's on mm -hmm. when you're a kid. And then uh, for a lot of uh, the Caucasians and, and, you know, look at the, look at uh, cultures that tend to consume uh, milk, they will go and uh, most likely have this uh, uh, mutation or trait. Maybe trait is, is more, more better. But I, I once worked for this uh, guy from India and I said, hey, you know, India and China, they're right next to each other. And Indians, uh, you know, uh, vegetarian, uh, they, they'll still consume milk and cheese. I'm like, you know, you're right next to China and, and typically uh, Chinese people are, are more likely to have a higher incidence of lactose intolerance. And, you know, the Indians, they consume all this dairy products. You know, why is that? Why, why, do, you, why do you not have that, uh, you know, transfer of genetics? And he goes, have you ever heard of this uh, small mountain range called the Himalayas? <laughs> like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Uh, that makes sense. Um, so, you know, Indians, they, they tend to have, uh, this, uh, genetic trait where they can consume, uh, lactose Caucasians generally than other cultures. They, they may, uh, be less likely to consume it. However, if you eat an old cheddar, uh, over time, um, you know, that, that lactose, you know, you, some people, they might be lactose intolerant, not be able to drink milk. Uh, they might have trouble with ice cream because a lot of times 
uh, instead of using um, uh, cane sugar, a, a, a company might use lactose uh, in, in there because it's cheaper. It's, it's a, a waste product in, in, from cheese making. Uh, but if you consume cheddar, there's going to be very little lactose left. And so there might be people that are lactose intolerant that can consume cheese products, but can't consume um, mm. uh, milk. Now that differs from like a, a milk allergy is um, they're having a, uh, an, aller, um, an immune yeah, response, reaction. immune reaction to the protein. And, uh, and so, you know, they can't go anywhere, you know, near that. So that's a lot, a lot different. Um, but anyway, um, so we talked, we talked about uh, fat, water, I, I implied there's a lot of water in there, um, casein, whey, and then there are the, the lactose. And so, uh, you know, that lactose um, is delivered and then there's uh, calcium, uh, ash, uh, minerals, uh, yeah. depending on what you're looking at. There's a high, a high amount of minerals in there. Now your minerals, that can crystallize, your lactose, that can, can crystallize. And so, um, you know, the, the mammals, uh, cows, horses, uh, humans, they have a way to deliver nourishment from the mother to the child so that the, um, the, it'll, they can consume it at a very young age and not worry about crystals forming in the teat and all of a sudden having a blockage or lactose doing the same thing that it all ends up in the, in the, uh, for the, for the child. So, um, milk is an amazing, amazing thing. And, uh, you know, PETA will often emphasize all oh, you're stealing, you're stealing something that's designed for a baby cow. It's like, well, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, but it's, a, I mean, you're right. Milk is a fascinating thing. Like you said earlier, it's designed to, to make this baby cow into a big cow, right? Like it's, or at least to jumpstart it. And that's the case for mammalians, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like this milk um, is really transformative. And as you're yeah. talking about all the differences in cultures and the, the um, the milk drinkers or you know, the dairy consumers versus those who didn't. Um, I heard a story once, and maybe you've heard of it. Uh, and I think it was from one of the Icelandic sagas. You know, okay. what I'm going to say, uh, like uh, so I, yeah. the the Vikings land, you know, in North America, and they they encounter the the Na Native Americans who they call the Skraelings, and um, you know, it was. I don't know, I, I, maybe it was in a documentary, I heard someone theorize that, you know, if they offered them milk mm -hmm. and it, everything was nice in the beginning, but then like suddenly unexplained goes to war, um, it could be that the the native population was lactose intolerant and thought they were mm -hmm. getting poisoned, you know, ah. if, so I don't know, I, I heard something about that. And I, if, if anyone's listening and you know, the story a little better, um, you know, put it in the comment section below. I'd love to find that out and track that down a little better, but it's one of those things where, you know, <laughs> how does, how does milk impact, you know, uh, human interaction and, and diplomacy, right? It's, and, and it's going to be play a big role, um, you know, as far as, you know, probably what gets consumed. And so um, you know, a big, big thing that plays a role is, um, you know, are you putting the cows, taking the cows up the Alps where, and then bring them back down? Uh, you'll probably have different types of cheese that are being made as you're pasturing. Um, there's going to be within the lactation cycle. If you live in a culture that, um, tends to be on a seasonal cycle here in America, 
we're able to feed the cows hay, grain throughout the year. So then they're also able to give birth throughout the year. So rather than having uh, birth tend to happen in the spring, uh, but you're going to have different quality of milk uh, at the beginning of a, of a uh, lactation cycle versus at the end of a lactation cycle. That gets smoothed out if you uh, are not on a seasonal uh, program. Um, if, if, you know, grass-fed, carry, uh, carry gold, they make a big deal about having a little tint to their cheese. Um, you know, that's because they're grass-fed. So that, and that can add grassy flavors as, as well uh, that we might not have in more uh, grain-fed cows. And then if you're uh, nomadic, uh, you know, maybe you're, you're uh, that's going to play a role whether or not, you know, you have a winter because not now you're probably going to be taking some cheese uh, and maybe you make your Parmesan that can be aged longer and you focus a lot on that and are able to cellar it if you're, you know, an established culture that's not nomadic. And that, uh, that would be a type of cheese uh, designed to, you know, make it last for the winter. Whereas others, they might be consuming yogurt all the time, uh, where it's uh, more of a fresher style and they're not aging at all. So those are some of the, where culture and um, society and geography and uh, all, all interact. Yeah, really. You know, the, like you said, the ge- uh, even trade routes and mobility, you know, mm-hmm. go into um, how these things uh, are made, developed, or, you know, what the trend is for eating. I mean, I, I heard a story once that someone theorized that maybe it's a folktale that, uh, you know, it was the Bedouin who discovered cheese because they would put the the milk in, in their sheep uh, bladder flask. And as they rode, you know, it would churn the, the milk and, um, you know, you would have this, these, you know, enzymes from the, the bladder you know, that separated the curds and the whey and, you know, left cheese. I mean, maybe, um, you know, they, they'll say, uh, you know, they'll give you a picture of people riding camels and stuff. And look, if it's happening in the Middle East, the camels um, come a little later. So that doesn't quite work given our um, chronology with the, you know, with what we have from Sumerian and and earlier uh, documentation, but yeah. Anyway, um, Let, uh, let's talk uh, cheese science because that's a um, yeah. Why why would uh, having cheese in a bladder make a big deal? And so yes. uh, the the process is you know start with milk, uh, you pasteurize it. Uh, how you pasteurize it might determine what type of cheese you're looking at. So if I am looking to grab onto a lot of moisture, I'm going to pasteurize this at a high temperature for a long time because there are uh, disulfide bonds. So there's sulfur, some amino acids have sulfur. And uh, normally your whey and your uh, casein are not gonna interact very much. But if you go and pasteurize and do it at a high temperature, the heat will cause the cross-linking. And then all of a sudden you've got whey whey proteins that have been denatured and bound to the casein. And so you might want to do that if you're making a yogurt, mm-hmm. if you're making a, um, a cheese that is supposed to be a little bit more runny, uh, especially if you heat it up. And so that's, that's one part of one lever you can use when uh, designing a cheese. The next part is the acid step. And so in your cheese that you make at home, you're adding external acid. Could be vinegar, could be citric acid, could be, um, you know, well, those are probably going to be the two, two main ones. Um, 
or if you are, you know, making it in a vat, you're going to add lactobacillus. You're going to add uh, uh, thermophiles, mesophiles, uh, depending on what type of cheese that you're trying to make. Those are different uh, types of cultures that have different attributes and they're going to add different flavors to it. Uh, some might break down the proteins a little bit more. Some might leave them more intact and that might determine how you age things out. So that's, um, and, and the big thing right now is, is also uh, throughput. So if you are a big industrial um, uh, company, so therm thermophiles have been typically used more on the Italian cheeses. Well, let's say you make cheddar cheese in that same style. Well, your thermophiles, that means they're more active at a higher temperature. They're producing more acid. That might allow you to produce cheddar faster, but there's a trade-off that, um, you know, if you, if you don't control it right, uh, it might uh, crumble more. It might not age out as well, might get bitter with time. So there's, uh, depending on what type of cheese, uh, you might be able to make a cheaper cheese by going faster, but there's going to be trade-offs down the road. And, uh, and for some applications, that's perfectly all right, because, you know, if it's going on top of a, uh, of a pizza or something, and then, you know, yeah, you don't, you don't necessarily need a certain type of cheese for that. Um, then coagulation. So at that coagulation step, you might add a rennet. And so I, I, I reference, reference the casing being negatively charged. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you ever take two magnets and put them next to each other, you know, they're going to be attracted if, you know, they're the opposites attract, but uh, repulsion, uh, if, if, uh, if the magnetics, is, you know, the same type, same with, with, uh, with electricity, uh, electrical charges. And so that's how the casing helps keeps things dispersed is that it's spreading out. But if you're making cheese, you're going to want to compress some of those things together. And rennet is um, what is coming from the intestinal, intestinal linings of a young calf. And, uh, and over time, those enzymes will turn off as the calf gets bigger. But that is, uh, they're very active when it's, when it's a calf. Um, or you go and genetically modify a uh, microbe. Uh, you, let's say you take a gene that codes for that uh, particular enzyme. And the one that seems to be the most stable at the moment, the most specific, so that it always cuts the same way and not uh, be, being irregular with the proteins is coming from camels. And so it's a chymosin or chymex. Uh, but the, they'll take that, uh, that enzyme, the genetic code for it, put it into a, a bacteria. They will grow it on a medium and then they will filter out that enzyme and sell it to cheese making. And so if we had to use just calf intestines, uh, we would not have enough calf intestines to make enough uh, cheese. Uh, we would not be able to fulfill that demand. And if you are concerned about, uh, let's say, um, kosher or things like that, um, it's easier to have, you know, kosher uh, chymosin coming from a uh, uh, recombinant microbe versus uh, trying to, you know, because otherwise then you have to find a rennet that has been coming from a calf that has been killed in a kosher manner and it ends up becoming a big deal. So that's one of the things when it comes to kosher cheese, and I would assume anything that's halal compliant, uh, that might be a big deal with that. Um, so then, so by putting on that, that, uh, that chymosin, it shaves the casing of those little hairs. And they do look like little hairs that have negative charges on. You shave them out. And so then the kappa casing, which gets cut off, that goes into the waste stream. 
and uh, your casein molecules and your fat globules can all be pressed together without uh, what you want to do in order to make cheese. And they've, in the waste room, uh, the kappa casein, they, they think there's some growth properties to that. So they've tried to, can we refine out the kappa casein? Uh, I don't think there's a cost-effective way to do that, but there, you know, for people that are interested in muscle building, there's been that. Lactoferrin, that is a, um, uh, a milk, you know, so the calves also need iron, but iron's very reactive. And so the cow and, uh, has this molecule that will bind the iron so it can be delivered to the calf in a safe way. So don't, you don't have all this um, oxidative stress going on inside the calf. Um, but lactoferrin is often used in, um, as an anti-antimicrobial, uh, uh, and is often used in uh, like toothpaste and other things. So um, that gets further refined out of, of the waste stream. But back to cheese. Um, so now you have uh, in, in in acid sick cheese, you wouldn't have you don't necessarily would have that uh, that rennet. And it sounds like with your farmer's cheese, you haven't added rennet to that. But that's something that that can be done. But it, uh, with an acid sick cheese, it's not as necessary. Uh, but by removing that kappa casein so that you can press everything together so that it's all the same charge, um, you don't have to acidify as much. So you don't have to get, have as crumbly of a cheese. And so your protein uh, changes shape based on the, uh, the, uh, the pH. So, you know, you add, if you were to go and do that with eggs, you know, you'll sometimes, uh, you know, pickle eggs, you yeah. know, become solid. And you're not cooking them and you're not boiling them. Uh, that's all from the nature denaturation or the uh, protein denaturation. And uh, that's what heating, you know, boiling eggs does it, is it denatures the protein as well. It's just you're here, you're doing it by acid. Uh, you cause it to change shape. And uh, if you go too far with it, you can get crumbly and gritty and, and other things that you don't want uh, in certain types of cheese. So that's the coagulation step is um, you've got it a, a curd at this point, and you now have to cut the curd. It's now a solid um, mass. And there's a few ways you can do it. Um, with If you wanna get rid of a lot of moisture, you're gonna cut them very fine, uh, like the size of rice, it'll be called ricing. And you would do that with a like a mo low moisture um, uh, Parmesan. This isn't a true Parmesan, but it's in that same category of hard cheeses. And um, you're really cutting them thin and you will cook the curd. As you heat up the cheese, um, the, this curd, the, it's, it's it becomes more hydrophobic the higher you raise the temperature. And so as you raise the temperature, it becomes hydrophobic and will help expel more water from the curd. And of course, if you wanna lower moisture um, uh, cheese, uh, for, especially if you want to go and uh, age it out longer, uh, you'll cut a smaller curd and you will go and uh, cook it at a higher temperature. Or let's say you want a, a higher moisture cheese. Um, I don't know where Munster is, but Munster melts. You know, typically if you have more uh, uh, moisture in there, and I, and I, I have heard from uh, some of my Mexican friends that uh, there was a period of time where you didn't have as many Mexican cheeses being made up in, uh, in here. Um, they would use Munster as an alternative for their quesadillas, mm. uh, because of its melt properties. Right. And, and, you know, as an aside from a culture standpoint here in the new world, uh, most of our cheese, you know, the cheese varieties that we have in America are coming from the old country. So in, um, 
in Mexico, you've got a lot of, you know, I think last time I mentioned how German influence on the beer, on the brewing yeah. side, you also have a German influence on the, um, on the cheese side. Uh, Parmesan, you know, the EU hates us because we will go and call a cheese that is not made from the Parma uh, region of, of Italy. We will call that Parmesan. And, you know, I'm sorry, this was, we had Italian immigrants come from the old country. They came here and they made uh, the cheese that they knew and they named it, um, you know, after their, their home country to honor it. So, you know, they have a legitimate reason to call it Parmesan. Yeah. And, um, you know, cheddar comes from the Italian or I'm sorry, the uh, English area of, of cheddar uh, England. And so that would be a, what they got from that culture. And, uh, and ricotta, uh, you know, ricotta, uh, uh, traditional ricotta is they, that is an acidification and a heating of the whey protein and any casing that might've escaped into the whey stream. Uh, that was a way to make value out of the whey stream uh, mm. before they really knew what to do with it. So traditional ricotta um, would be a cooking and acidifying uh, the whey into curdles uh, that they would still then make money off of and wouldn't have to spread it on a, on a field. Uh, but, you know, I like myself uh, a whole, whole milk ricotta, so that's not going that through that way. Uh, but I like... Um, I, I like my, my fatty cheeses. Um, so back to, so they, they cook it. The other That's thing. That's the like quote the of the podcast, by the way, I like my uh, fatty cheeses. Uh, this, this is whole milk. Um, uh, I, I personally, I think it's better for you. It, uh, I get fuller, uh, off of whole milk. Um, uh, you know, with, with, uh, skim milk, I can drink a lot of that and not feel as full. Um, fat is, uh, uh, it, it's, uh, there's satiety to it. So then uh, the, the other thing that the cooking does is it stops the culture. So if you don't cook your, uh, your cheese, it'll continue to produce acid. And so your mesophiles that I mentioned before, uh, those are at a lower temperature. You heat them up and you, uh, you deactivate them. The thermophiles, uh, they're less affected by um, the temperature. They like the higher temperature. But if you got your mesophiles, uh, maybe you're making a cheddar in the traditional style. Um, then you deactivate, uh, your, your microbes and your pH will, um, it'll eventually go up a little bit because there's buffering capacity. Uh, but that's how you kind of control it from going too far. If you, you've, uh, you let it get too acidic, it'll get cracked and crumbly. And, um, if you're using the yellow color annatto, which is from a seed, um, it'll turn it pink. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, you'll, you'll sometimes find in, some of the fast made cheddars, if it looks a little pink, either it's been sitting there a while in the high, um, in the intense deli lights, which might be higher UV, they've oxidized the color a little bit, or maybe uh, they have went a little bit too acidic on that cheese. Um, but at this stage, then you'll also, uh, you'll, you'll then drain. And so you'll drain off the whey. And in there, if there's any unconverted lactose, uh, that'll also be uh, uh, drained away as well, because if there's lactose there still, um, the microbes, if they're not fully shut off, will continue to eat it and convert it. Um, if they are shut off, any of your contaminations that uh, you might just say is the, uh, they call it non-starter lactic acid bacteria, NS lab, NIS, NIS lab. Um, it's, it's basically a pretty name for contamination, but uh, you might get some uh, uh, unique flavors from that. 
then you salt the cheese. And so for your thermophiles and your more Italian styles, uh, that's, they're very salt sensitive and that will go and um, shut off their activity. And, uh, and notice this is after the draining. So, you know, now your whey is away, you know, you can go and convert that into whey protein and sell that to uh, uh, muscle heads. And then <laughs> your, your, your salt is, uh, is added and salt is, it's a preservative. It's, it's flavorful. Yeah. And so it's uh, there's a lot of value there. It helps draw off more moisture. And then uh, there's the forming stage where you'll uh, form it into maybe hoops, you know, so Parmesan is, is traditionally in a circle. Cheddar is typically in slabs and, uh, and then you'll press it and the pressure will help, you know, help the curds knit together, help expel any ex remaining whey. And, uh, and then if it is to be aged, you'll age it at a, at a controlled temperature. Uh, sometimes you might put it through different stages. Um, you might actually add at one of these phases, maybe uh, they, they were playing around with secondary culture. So if you wanted certain flavors um, and you weren't gonna rely on the house culture that was contaminated the cheese, uh, you would add this culture to it at, the, uh, at a later phase. And then that would be what eats what's remaining or break down any of the, um, the back the, uh, the protein and continue to make, uh, make flavors. And if you're making something like a brie, uh, this would be the stage where you would put an outside culture on the, on the outside. And so with that, you put a mold and, uh, and so for, you know, for, for pregnant women, uh, you know, you don't want to eat the raw, the raw cheese, mm -hmm. um, there's a chance of, of, uh, listeria, which is an abortifactant, the, the, uh, uh, toxin that it creates, uh, can, can result in, in, um, uh, uh, in the mother losing the child. Yeah. Uh, but also the, the issue is with, uh, something like a, uh, schmear ripened cheese, like a brie, uh, that mold is going to break down some of the protein and produce ammonia. And so if you walk into any of these aging cellars for brie, it just smells like ammonia in there. Wow. And, uh, and that's because you know, ammonia, amino acids, you know, similar names, uh, those amino acids are being broken down into ammonia and that raises the pH. And so one of your things that was helping protect the cheese by having a low, a low pH, well, now that you're working against that and ra raising the pH. So, um, that's the process in a nutshell. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any, any questions? Well, I mean, the, the first question is how come um, we don't have like, you know, how come Kobe cows aren't making Kobe, you know, beer cheese, right? Like, you know, that, that way we can combine our two podcasts together. Um, you know, feed well, the cows beer. Did you say Colby? Because there's a Colby cheese. No, not Colby. Colbert. Colbert. <laughs> sorry. Japanese. The the Colbert style. Um, Wagyu. Wagyu. Yeah. Yeah. Wagyu beef. And, um, you know, why aren't we getting a cheese like that that's uh, tinged with beer? You know, where Napoleon Dynamite says, you know, this is clearly made by uh, a Japanese cow. <laughs> maybe <laughs> well, they do maybe, in Japan. I don't know. Maybe that, that so, happens. So the different breeds of cows. Um, so there is a... Uh, there's a company out in California. It's a, it's a cooperative called Hillmar. And uh, they, uh, and so California does, uh, I think they're the dairy state. They might even be the cheese state now. Um, they, they, uh, 
overthrew uh, Wisconsin a long time ago. We had commercials, real California cheese, you know. Uh, well, and, and, and happy cows come from California. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so Hillmar got their start because uh, there was a bunch of farmers there that uh, raised Jersey. And Jerseys are, are real nice cows uh, coming from uh, Jersey out in uh, over in Europe. And they are um, a real nice temperament, whereas Holsteins can be a little bit more high strung. Uh, and they produce less, less volume of milk, uh, but higher solids. Uh, so higher fats, higher protein. Um, and, and so that is what you'd want to, in, to make, to have for making cheese. And the cheese factories were not willing to pay them more. Uh, whatever calculation they were doing for um, the milk solids and then paying them based on that was not uh, in their favor. And so they said, well, we'll pool our resources. They started a co-op. Uh, it's now a very large um, uh, cheese company. And, uh, and they specialize uh, in, in cheddar at many of their, their plants. But they, uh, you know, the way cooperative is set up is the farmers then get paid, paid better. And they could pay based on solids, which the other uh, uh, milk factories in the area, cheese factories, were not paying them on. And and uh, you know, and if you're if you're a cheese factory and you're and you're buying Jersey milk, you're benefiting from that because because of the higher solids. Uh, so that is one example of how different cows produce different types of milk. Um, cow uh, Holsteins uh, produce a higher volume. And so, um, they tend to be the dairy cow of choice in America, yeah. uh, especially for, for fluid milk. Uh, but you know, they, they do have, uh, some of them do have an attitude to, to them and then your species of, of, uh, animal, you know, uh, um, uh, what's that, uh, movie meet the, Oh yeah. Meet the, I'm not sure if I can say the last word. Well, it it's, uh, it's spelled with an O. Um, uh, that's it's a rip off of a, a another movie called Meeting Daddy. Oh, um, I did not know that. Yeah, uh, I, I got to see the screening with the director uh, several years back, and um, then you know, I think it was a year and a half later, you get Meet the F O C K E R S with yeah. you know the, those other guys. But the others had um, the Bridges, and it. it had Lloyd Bridges and uh, Bo Bridges. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know if Jeff Bridges was in. I forget. Um, it wasn't too. It was around the time of the Big Lebowski, so. Uh, I should remember something like that. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a Ben Stein movie. And, uh, you know, as Ben Stein says, um, all of, uh, what if you can, if you can milk a cow, you can milk a mall. I don't know, but it's been a while. Uh, but, uh, you know, shows milking a, 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 a mouse, uh, you can, you can make, um, cheese from, from goat milk, from, from sheep milk. Uh, horse milk, um, you might have heard of kefir, which is a fermented liquid. Uh, so it's still, still liquid, but it's, uh, it's basically a liquid yogurt um, common to the Slavic countries. Kumis is the uh, horse milk version of that. And, uh, you know, there are certain, so whereas cow milk, you tend to have more casein in it than you do uh, whey. And some of these other uh, species, um, don't quote me on this, but I think, I think with goats and with sheep and with horses, uh, you have more whey in there than you do, um, casing. And so, uh, those are going to be a little bit closer to human milk. And, uh, with horses, I have been told is the closest to human milk. 
Mm. Oh, well. And, and I, I heard someplace that Serbian tennis player, um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, uh, he purchased uh, like a bunch of uh, horse milk cheese to be served at his uh, at his restaurants that he w- that he owned. So, bon uh, like the, like the, like a, a cheesemaker's entire annual supply he he just purchased. Hey, you know if you're a success, um, you know why not? Why yeah. not? Um, so, last thing you know, I think we can leave everybody with is what advice do you have for um, you know surviving the apocalypse when it comes to when it comes to cheese, you know, as sure. a food scientist, um, what can we do? You know, I think probably a lot of the listeners, they don't make their own cheese or their own yogurt or, or things like that. But, um, you know, what's a, what's a good way forward for people? Well, I mean, if you wanted to go and have cheese in your, while well, in your fridge, or in your pantries or, uh, cellars, let's say, uh, something that, uh, you know, you still want it to be a little bit on the cooler side, but if you wanted to have cheese that would last a while, you'd want your, uh, your lower, lower moisture, higher salt cheeses. So Parmesan would be a good candidate, you know, buy that by the wheel and you'll have the rind on the outside still. And so you could uh, have that last a while. Um, you know, your sharp cheddars, uh, by the time, you know, if it says sharp, uh, it, it might not have been aged out to a year or so, but, um, it was probably a cheese that was designed to be, to be aged and you could age that out on your own. And, um, that would, you'd probably want to keep in your fridge, but a Parmesan you could keep, uh, at, a outside of your fridge. I mean, if they're aging it in warehouses that aren't refrigerated, they're temperature controlled. Uh, so yeah, I guess Parmesan would be my go-to cheese to go and, uh, stock a cellar with. All right. Well, uh, you heard it here. And um, listen, I, you know, I know we could keep going because uh, there's a lot of little sub conversations we could have had either with the cheese or the chemistry. But um, and if there's any chemistry teachers listening or watching, you know, give this episode to your students and have them pick out the vocabulary. Right. Like you either know Greek you know, where, where things like thermophile, just like you get it, you know, it, or the amino acid tyrosine, hydrophobic, you know, like basic <laughs> chemistry terms. And, um, you know, you either know the language or, you know, the, the field, um, have them come for extra credit, but, uh, Hey man, look, this if is, I a could, cool... if I could go and put it, um, yeah. so there, there is a website, uh, that if they are a science teacher or, or if you're just interested in the science of cheese and, um, cheese science, dot org um uh they won't be posting any new content because the uh, creator passed away oh. uh but he um he was very good at um he, he did infographics he he was talented as as a computer uh a graphic design artist and so he has put a lot of what i have said into graphic form in a way that's very educational and, you know, if you were to go and be a science teacher and wanted to, you know, at, at your home, if you wanted to teach your kids the science of making cheese, you could have them make ricotta or um, maybe you're talking about Lebna or a, or a type of cheese, yeah. that, uh, a farmer's cheese. Um, you know, that's that's uh, that's actually I, I did that uh, as an experiment. How does whole milk uh, ricotta taste compared to skim milk ricotta? And, you know, there's lots of things you can do. But uh, cheesescience.org is um, just a very good job at communicating uh, the science of cheese in a very visual manner. 
Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely going to provide the link. Um, well, thanks again, man. This is, uh, you know, been uh, content rich. And um, just like if this were a cheese, it would be a Limburger. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, or maybe a provolone, right? Like something that, you know, uh, that smells like your feet. How do I make it sound rich but pleasant at the same time? It would taste like a uh, nice cheddar cheese with tyrosine crystals. That, oh. that is something you'll have to go onto the website to look up. Tyrosine, what is that? And for those who speak Greek, you'll you'll know uh, the etymology of that word. Awesome, man. Well, thank you much. Good having you. Have a good day. Mm-hmm.